As we prepare to open God's word, let's pray together and ask that he would bless it to us. Let's pray. Blessed Lord, who has caused Holy Scripture to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear, read, learn, and inwardly digest them, that through the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. And please turn with me to our sermon text for this evening, which is uh, Zechariah chapter 7 and 8. We'll be uh, considering the entirety of those two chapters uh, for our sermon text this evening. And uh, these are, we've, uh, we've, we're out of the section now of Zechariah, that Zechariah is recounting his visions. We, uh, we considered the last of Zechariah's eight visions last week, and so we're into a new section of the book of Zechariah, which uh, is no longer recounting visions, but there are uh, more typically what we associate with prophecy, various oracles from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, and Zechariah will uh, recount what the Lord says to him, the, the words of the Lord to the people. Um, of course, there's a beautiful imagery in the visions and some beautiful language, but these chapters, uh, the language is, is absolutely as beautiful as it gets, in my opinion, in these, uh, especially in chapter 8. This is stunningly beautiful language that we have here. Um, and just to note why we're considering two chapters of the book this evening, uh, the action really gets going in chapter 7 when uh, the, this delegation from the town of Bethel comes to ask a question of the priests and the prophets in Jerusalem, and that question is not answered until the end of chapter 8. So we want to think about the, uh, the reason why that question is not answered for so long, why God puts off answering that question, and so we'll consider both these chapters. But let's read uh, now Zechariah chapter 7 and 8, which will be our sermon text for this evening, uh, beginning in uh, Zechariah chapter 7, verse 1. In the fourth year of King Darius, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, which is Kislev. Now the people of Bethel had sent Sharetzer and Regamelech and their men to entreat the favor of the Lord, saying to the priests of the house of the, of the Lord of hosts and the prophets, should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? Then the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, say to all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? Were not these the words that the Lord proclaimed by the former prophets when Jerusalem was inhabited and prosperous, with her cities around her, and the south and the lowland were inhabited? And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Render true judgments, show kindness and mercy to one another. Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor. And let none of you devise evil against another in your heart. But they refused to pay attention and turned a stubborn shoulder and stopped their ears that they might not hear. They made their hearts diamond hard lest they should hear the law and the words that the Lord of hosts had sent by his spirit through the former prophets. Therefore, great anger came from the Lord of hosts. As I called and they would not hear, so they called and I would not hear, said the Lord of hosts. And I scattered them with a whirlwind among the nations that they had not known. Thus the land they left was desolate, so that no one went to and fro, and the pleasant land was made desolate. And the word of the Lord of hosts came, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Zion with great jealousy, 
and I am jealous for her with great wrath. Thus says the Lord, I have returned to Zion, and I will dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and Jerusalem shall be called the faithful city, and the mountain of the Lord of hosts, the holy mountain. Thus says the Lord of hosts, old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in the streets. Thus says the Lord of hosts, If it is marvelous in the sight of the remnant of this people in those days, should it also be marvelous in my sight, declares the Lord of hosts? Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, and I will bring them to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem, and they shall be my people, and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness." Thus says the Lord of hosts, let your hands be strong, you who in these days have been hearing these words from the mouth of the prophets who were present on the day that the foundation of the house of the Lord of hosts was laid, that the temple might be built. For before those days there was no wage for man or any wage for beast. Neither was there any safety from the foe for him who went out or came in. For I set every man against his neighbor. But now... I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in the former days, declares the Lord of hosts, for there shall be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their due. And I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all these things. And as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, O house of Judah and house of Israel, so I will save you, and you shall be a blessing. Fear not, but let your hands be strong. For thus says the Lord of hosts, As I purposed to bring disaster to you, when your fathers provoked me to wrath, and I did not relent, says the Lord of hosts, so again have I purposed in these days to bring good to Jerusalem and to the house of Judah. Fear not. These are the things that you shall do. Speak the truth to one another. Render in your gates judgments that are true and make for peace. Do not devise evil in your hearts against one another, and love no false oath, for all these things I hate, declares the Lord. And the word of the Lord of hosts came to me, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. Therefore love truth and peace. Thus says the Lord of hosts, People shall yet come, even the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, In those days ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. Thus far the reading of God's word. May he bless it to us. Well, as I say, we we finished up those visions of Zechariah last week, those eight visions which the Lord uh, showed to Zechariah on the night of February 15, in the year 519. And uh, we come now to a new section of the book of Zechariah, chapters 7 and 8. And we know it's a new section because we get a new date at the beginning of these chapters. 
And it's been almost two years. Almost two years have elapsed since those visions were shown to Zechariah. This date, the fourth year of Darius, the fourth day, the ninth month, is December 7 of the year 518 B.C. So we're 22 months later now from those visions which Zechariah saw. And over the course of this time, during, this, uh, during these months, the work on the temple had continued. Uh, the Lord had greatly blessed this work. It wasn't done yet, but they were coming nearer every day to, uh, to finishing the temple. And they were coming closer every day as well to the end of Jeremiah's 70 years that he had prophesied. He had prophesied 70 years of exile, of judgment, of wrath uh, against the people, against God's people for their sin. And they're coming close now to uh, the finishing of the temple and uh, close as well to the end of these 70 years of wrath. And it's in this context that Zechariah receives this question about fasting. And uh, we had last week our, our sermon from uh, Mark, if you can think uh, back uh, one week to the, to, the sermon, um, to the morning sermon from last week, uh, Pastor Godfrey preached a sermon uh, on a passage in Mark, and the action in that passage also begins with a question about fasting. Why do Jesus' disciples not fast when uh, John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast? And our passage this week also starts with this question about fasting. This is what gets the action going. And the teaching which we heard from Mark is certainly very relevant to to this passage. And I think especially in that it brings out wonderfully and beautifully for us how uh, the the fulfillment of these promises which the Lord makes through the prophet Zechariah in uh, the person of our Lord Jesus Christ, that these promises are fulfilled in him. This this feasting that Zechariah prophesies is fulfilled in, in Jesus Christ. And we saw how it was fulfilled in that sermon from Mark. It's a beautiful thing when we see how the Old and New Testaments fit together so nicely. But we get this uh, at the beginning of our passage, this group from Bethel, the city of Bethel, which is a city uh, 12 miles, about 12 miles north of Jerusalem. So they come down from Bethel, this group, and they come to the priests and the prophets in Jerusalem, those, uh, those people who would have been uh, the mediators between God and the, and the people who would have normally uh, uh, filled that role of, of mediation. And they ask them a question. We see their question in chapter 7, verse 3. Should I weep and abstain in the fifth month as I have done for so many years, they ask. Now, they're referring to the fast of the fifth month, which is a fast that uh, commemorated the destruction of Jerusalem, which took place in the fifth month by, by Babylon. So in 586, in the fifth month, Babylon came in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, and that's what this fast commemorates. That's what this fast remembers, is this, uh, is this destruction of the city. And we have three other fasts also mentioned in this passage, the fast of the fourth month, the fast of the seventh month, the fast of the tenth month, and these also are all connected to particular events surrounding the destruction of Jerusalem and the exile. All four of these fasts that are mentioned are commemorating events uh, surrounding the destruction and exile to Babylon. And so for almost 70 years now, there have been many Judeans who have been uh, weeping and fasting and mourning in all these months, the destruction and the exile, who have been uh, commemorating these events with these fasts in these four different months, at least this many fasts. And now there's this question from Bethel, as the temple is almost finished, as the 70 years are almost up, and they ask, can we stop fasting and mourning 
Can we stop, uh, can we stop commemorating, in other words, through in, uh, in sorrow and lament, the destruction and the exile to Babylon? And so really what they're asking, the question they're really asking at, the, at its root is, is the exile over? Is, is the exile truly over as the temple is almost finished, as the 70 years are almost up? Because if the exile is over, it is no longer a time for fasting. And as I said, the actual answer to this question does not come until almost the end of chapter 8. You might have heard it as we read uh, toward the end of chapter 8 when the Lord finally gives the answer to this question about fasting. But in the, in the time in between the question and the answer, the Lord uses this question about fasting to teach in a beautiful way about the nature of his kingdom through the prophet Zechariah, ultimately teaching the people that his kingdom is a place not for fasting, but for feasting. The kingdom that he is bringing is a place for feasting. And so we really see in this passage three specific aspects of, that bring out for us the, the nature of the kingdom that God is bringing, that he's promising. Three reasons, we might say, why God's kingdom is a place for feasting and not for fasting. First, we see the sincere worship of the kingdom, the sincere worship of the kingdom. And second, we see the superb blessing of the kingdom. And finally, we see the swelling population of the kingdom. So those will be our three points this evening. Sincere worship, superb blessing, and swelling population. So we'll begin to consider this, uh, thinking about the sincere worship of the kingdom. And God begins uh, to answer this question. As I said, he puts off the answer for a while to give this wonderful teaching on the kingdom. And he actually begins to answer this question with a set of his own questions. In verses 5 and 6, he says, uh, through Zechariah, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and in the seventh for these 70 years, was it for me that you fasted? And when you eat and when you drink, do you not eat for yourselves and drink for yourselves? In other words, what the Lord is really asking the people to consider here is what is your motivation behind your fasting? What is your goal in observing all these fasts? Right? People generally eat and drink. We know this from, from our own experience, we eat and drink for our own benefit, to sustain our bodily life, uh, we, to, uh, to, to sustain life. This is the purpose of eating and drinking for our own benefit. And so the Lord is asking them, is this also why you are fasting? Is it for your own benefit? Is it merely a show of piety? Is it to look righteous before others? Is it to manipulate God into, into hopefully blessing you by observing things you think he'll find, uh, he'll find um, glorifying to him while your heart is not in the right place? And Zechariah really reminds the people what the motive and what the goal of fasting should be by pointing them to the fathers, pointing them to that rebellious generation that went into exile 70 or so years earlier. That's really what the remainder of chapter 7 is taken up with, is, is pointing them to this uh, past generation. He says in um, 7, verse 7, Jerusalem was once prosperous. It was once surrounded by these cities that were themselves prosperous, that were inhabited. Um, and the Lord had brought great blessing to his people, in other words, in the promised land. He had given them everything that they could have ever needed and much, much more. And what did the Lord require because of this great blessing. What did he ask of his people? Well, he asked obedience from them. And this is what the former prophets cried out to the people in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 7. Render true judgments. Show kindness and mercy to one another. 
Do not oppress the widow, the fatherless, the sojourner, or the poor, and let none of you devise evil against one another in your heart. In other words, care for the weakest among you, the most vulnerable among you. Love God, love your neighbor as yourself, not only outwardly, but also he, he gets to uh, the concern of the heart. Do not devise evil against one another in your heart. Love God and neighbor from the heart, he says. But we know how, how the story goes. Zechariah has recounted this story before. The fathers, that rebellious generation, did not listen. And so in verses 11 and 12, we read about their uh, failure to listen. They didn't pay attention. They plugged their ears. They didn't even want to hear what God had to say. They turned their, a stubborn shoulder like an ox that's trying to get a, a yoke off its back. Uh, they hardened their hearts against God and against his law. And so God brought the punishment that they deserved. In verse 12, we read about that. Uh, through the end of verse 12 to uh, verse 14, the end of the chapter, God brought the punishment that they deserved for this rebellion. They refused to hear his cries that he cried over and over again through the prophets to them. And so he refused to hear their cries. He scattered them among the nations in exile. This land that God had once uh, made prosperous and inhabited and, and uh, abundant was now a wasteland, a desolate wasteland, and no one even wanted to pass over it. No one, it was so desolate, such a waste, that no one wanted to even go to and fro over it. He brought destruction and exile on his people. And so as uh, this group from Bethel comes to entreat the Lord to ask for the Lord's guidance on this matter of fasting, the Lord reminds them uh, the point of this fasting. What should be the point of this fasting over the destruction and the exile to Babylon? It's not a show of false piety. It's not to look good before others. It's not to manipulate God into bringing blessing. The generation before the exile still brought their sacrifices. They still uh, fasted at times. They still uh, worshipped God in a sense. But they were hypocrites. They did it for the wrong reasons. This fasting over the destruction and exile should bring true repentance. It should bring contrition for sin. It should bring sorrow for the sin of their fathers, and it should motivate greater obedience to the law of God. This is the purpose of fasting. God desires sincere worship, sincere love for God and neighbor, a sincere desire to obey his law, a sincere desire from, from the heart, not only outwardly, but from the heart. I think this passage brings out very well for us that this sincere obedience which God desires is born out of a gratitude for the great salvation which God has brought. Right? We've seen this already in chapter 7 as God is talking about that rebellious generation. God had blessed them so abundantly. He had made them prosperous. He had given them everything they needed and more, rest from their enemies. And over and over again, he blessed them by calling out to them, giving them chances to repent through his prophets. And this should have brought about sincere worship and grateful obedience, all this blessing which God had brought to them. But instead, they rejected God. They refused to repent. They oppressed the weakest among them. They hated God. They hated one another. We uh, see this connection made as well in chapter 8, that sincere worship should be born out of gratitude for all that God has done for his great salvation. This comes out even more clearly, I think, in chapter 8. As the Lord in the first part of chapter 8 enumerates all those great and varied blessings of his kingdom, 
and we'll look at this more closely in just a moment in our second point, but he, he enumerates, he lays out all of these wonderful blessings, and what does he say after he uh, lays out all these blessings that he promises to bring, this great salvation, that he is returning, uh, that, he will, that he will prosper the rebuilding work of the temple, that he will dwell among them. Um, what does God require? Grateful obedience, sincere worship, out of gratitude for all he has done, for all he will do. We see that in uh, chapter 8, verses 14 through 17. If you flip over there, the Lord brought disaster on the fathers, but he will bring blessing on this generation, he says. And he says, in response, these are the things you will do. Speak truth, judge justly, do not take false oaths, love God, love your neighbor. It's a list very similar to the list of things the former prophets cried out to the fathers, but they did not listen. And this certainly continues to be very relevant in our day, doesn't it? This, uh, that, that God's kingdom is a place of sincere worship. God has brought to us now the great salvation that he promised through our Lord Jesus Christ. He has returned to dwell with his people fully in the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to his kingdom. And his kingdom is a place of sincere worship, not worship to look good before others, not false piety, not worship to manipulate God into blessing us. And I think we should examine ourselves in the light of this teaching. Do we come to church? Do we worship God to look good before our friends and family? Do we come to the evening service because we think it gives us an extra bump in terms of our piety points? As the Reformed, uh, especially, do we seek theological precision in order to uh, worship the true God truly? Or do we seek theological precision uh, just in order to win arguments with others? Um, Do we want to look outwardly pious in our spiritual exercises, reading the Bible, praying, attending worship, while neglecting the most vulnerable in our midst? Now, this is by no means a rebuke. Megan and I have been overwhelmed by the love of Christ and the love of God and neighbor that we've seen on display in this church. But when we come to passages like this, it's important that we allow ourselves to be challenged and to be convicted and to be corrected in light of God's word. And what we see here is that God's kingdom is a place of sincere, of true worship, And so may our whole lives be an act of worship to God, an offering of ourselves as a sacrifice of thanksgiving and obedience. May we fast from the sin in our lives with true repentance and faith, born out of gratitude for all the great blessings which we enjoy and will enjoy because of the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this brings us then to our second point, that God's kingdom is a place of superb blessing. Zechariah 8 really is a beautiful picture of the superb blessing of the kingdom of God. And really it brings out for us, I think, just how multifaceted and varied uh, we can speak about this blessing. It's beyond uh, the ability of one metaphor to capture just how beautiful the blessing of God's kingdom is. And so we can think about it in terms of different ways that Zechariah talks about it here. He talks about it in terms of the Lord's presence in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3. And this is some language that we've seen before in the book of Zechariah, that the Lord is jealous for Zion, that he uh, is zealous for his people. He desires Zion and the people who dwell in Zion for his very own. He will not share them with anyone else. The Lord has returned and he will dwell among his people. 
right? He's already returned, and his presence is uh, going to return, especially through the rebuilding of the temple, that where he will dwell in their midst. And because God is faithful and holy, because he is a faithful and holy God, Jerusalem, the place of his presence will be a faithful and a holy city, because he will dwell in their midst. And really, I think right off the bat, at the beginning of chapter 8, Zechariah gives us the fundamental blessing of the kingdom of God. That's the presence of God with his people. Because all the other blessings that come in God's kingdom, all the other things we can say about the kingdom come because God's presence is there. Without God's presence, it's, there's only curse. Without his presence, there is no kingdom of God to enjoy at all. So this is the fundamental blessing that we get very first in this chapter 8. We can think about uh, the blessing of the kingdom as well in terms of an idyllic city life. In chapter 8, verses 4 and 5, we see this, that old men and old women will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, that uh, the streets of Jerusalem will be filled with boys and girls playing. In Lamentations, uh, that book that mourns the destruction and the exile, uh, Lamentations uses the same word for streets a number of times and talks about the streets in connection with death. And with destruction, that there are dead bodies strewn in the streets. And it's a picture of, it's a horrible picture. It's a picture of absolute curse. But now God is reversing this curse. The streets will be filled with children playing, with old men and old women. It's a beautiful picture of city life, of peace and prosperity. There's no fear of death and destruction. Uh, There's playing, there's relaxing in these streets where those things once were. This is a picture of the perfect peace in the city of Jerusalem. And it brings out for us that God's kingdom is a place of perfect peace. That his kingdom is a place of perfect prosperity, like the most ideal city that we could possibly think of. The most peaceful city that we could possibly think of. We can think about the blessings of his kingdom as well in terms of agricultural plenty. We see this in chapter 8 verses 9 through 12. Zechariah begins by describing the situation before the rebuilding of the temple began. So uh, I I have mentioned this before, I think maybe briefly in passing, but the exiles returned in the year 538, but they didn't begin the building of the temple in earnest until the year 520, so a number of years later. And Haggai came to them and said, this is why your fields aren't giving crops. This is why you're experiencing such curses, because you care more about yourselves than about the building of God's temple. And the Lord says, because of this, those days were days of poverty. Those were days of, those were destitute days, days where there was no safety, where God cursed their harvests and their crops because of their disobedience. But now, he says in verse 11, I will not deal with the remnant of this people as in former days. The crops, their harvests, their, all their agricultural endeavors will bring abundant blessing and prosperity. In verse 12, there shall be a sowing of peace The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew. Once again, God will prosper this this land as he once did to their fathers. He will cause it to burst forth with plenty. He will cause it to once again bring forth its yield. And this brings out for us that God's kingdom is a place of abundance. It's a place of great bounty and fruitfulness. Finally, we can think of the blessing of God's kingdom in terms of feasting. This is really where we get the answer to that question from the beginning. We see this in uh, chapter 8, verse 19. Thus says the Lord of hosts, The fast of the fourth month, and the fast of the fifth month, and the fast of the seventh, and the fast of the tenth, 
shall be to the house of Judah seasons of joy and gladness and cheerful feasts. So this finally answers that question and answers it even in a greater way than what they asked. They just asked about the fifth month. But he says, all of your fasting will be turned into feasting. And now I think we can see why the Lord delayed his answer until after he had given all those other words about his kingdom. Because all the blessings that God is bringing, all these things that we've seen, are why his kingdom is a place for feasting and not for fasting. Because the Lord's presence is there, bringing faithfulness and holiness. Because it is a place of perfect peace, because it is a place of bounty and abundance. And brothers and sisters, these great blessings, which bring feasting rather than fasting, are all ours in Jesus Christ. He is the full presence of God in our midst. Now dwelling among us through his Holy Spirit, one day we will see him face to face. He has brought peace, defeating the enemies of God and of his people through his cross and resurrection. He is victorious over the grave and over death. And one day he will bring perfect and everlasting peace when he returns. He has brought bounty and abundance, bringing many sinners from death to life through the preaching of the gospel and the work of his Holy Spirit, making the church already in this age a place of faithfulness and holiness. And so we feast with joy in light of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. He is risen. He is victorious. He is enthroned. He is coming again in glory. And our salvation, our eternal dwelling with God is secure because of him. This is a reason for feasting and not for fasting. God's kingdom is a place of superb blessing, blessing beyond compare. But it is not only a place of sincere worship and superb blessing beyond our wildest dreams. It is also a place with a swelling population. And this brings us to our third and final point, the swelling population of God's kingdom. This really comes out most fully at the very end of chapter 8 in verses 20 to 23, but this teaching about the swelling population of God's kingdom is already foreshadowed earlier in that chapter in a couple verses. We see in verse 7 that God will bring his people from east and west to dwell in the midst of Jerusalem. And he says those great covenant words, they will be my people and I will be their God in faithfulness and in righteousness. God will make his covenant with those he gathers from east and from the west, right? This is, a, this is being used to, to talk about everywhere on earth, from the east and from the west. He's going to gather people from everywhere on earth and make his covenant with them. In verse 13, chapter 8, verse 13, as you have been a byword of cursing among the nations, so will I save you and you shall be a blessing. These people were once a cursing among the nations. The nations looked at them and looked at their desolate land and they said, your God has forsaken you. Your God is weak. Your, your God has cursed you and abandoned you. But God says, you will be a blessing. This is like his promise that he made to Abraham, that in him all the families of the earth would be blessed. And here he's reaffirming that promise. They're going to be a blessing to all the families on earth. God has not forgotten this promise that he made to Abraham. But really, as I said, this idea of God's kingdom as a swelling population culminates in uh, chapter 8, verses 20 to 23. These are beautiful words. Peoples shall yet come, the inhabitants of many cities. The inhabitants of one city shall go to another, saying, Let us go at once to entreat the favor of the Lord and to seek the Lord of hosts. 
I myself am going. Many peoples and strong nations shall come to seek the Lord of hosts in Jerusalem and to entreat the favor of the Lord. In those days, ten men from the nations of every tongue shall take hold of the robe of a Jew, saying, Let us go with you, for we have heard that God is with you. There's a day coming, Zechariah is saying, when peoples and nations from every tongue will come to entreat the Lord, just like this, uh, these people from Bethel are coming to entreat the Lord, to pray to the Lord, to seek his face. Peoples from every tongue and nation will do the same one day. Seek the Lord's favor, pray to him, bring, offer worship to him. The nations and the peoples will witness to one another in that day. They will exhort one another. Uh, They will encourage one another to seek the face of the Lord. They'll say, I'm going to seek the face of the Lord. Come with me. I'm going. I myself am going. Come with me, they will say. And God will make a covenant with all these nations and peoples, right? These are the peoples we read about gathered from east and west. God will make his covenant with them. He will be their God. They will be his people, these nations and peoples. God will make his people a blessing to the nations. Ten Gentiles will grab onto one Jew and beg to go with him because they know that the, that the one true God is with him. And this is really a beautiful picture of the age in which we live, an age in which the gospel is going forth in power and uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit, an age in which many peoples and nations and tongues are seeking the favor of the Lord, are entreating the Lord. We as the church are called to be like those peoples and those nations who witness, who exhort, who encourage one another and say, I'm going to seek the favor of the Lord, to worship the Lord, to pray to him, to offer true and sincere worship to him. Come with me. This is our calling as the church. Come with me to grab on to the robe of the Jew, our Lord Jesus Christ, in true faith, to cling tightly to his robe and not let go, to cling on to the one who God is not only with him in all his fullness, but who is himself God. And if we cling to him in true faith, he promises to bring us to God, to bring us into his kingdom, a place of sincere worship, a place of superb blessing beyond our imagination, a place fit for everlasting and perfect feasting with our Lord. May we all put our faith in Jesus Christ today. May we cling to him today in true faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious God and Father, thank you for the wonderful promises which you have made and fulfilled in our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for the superb blessings which already flow to us as those who have been brought into your kingdom. Would you help us to render sincere and true worship and obedience to you out of gratitude for all that our Lord has done. Thank you that your kingdom is a place of feasting, of fullness of joy in light of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ. We look forward to that day when we will feast with him in the new creation. Please hasten that day, we pray. Amen.